Welcome to another edition of the Reporters Roundtable. I'm your host, Patricia Robayo. Today, I'm joined with journalist Liam Mayo of The River Reporter, Chris Raleigh with the Schwankuk Journal, Derek Kirk from the Sullivan County Democrat, and Lena Bellamy from the Times Union. Don't forget, the Reporters Roundtable is a podcast. You can find the Reporters Roundtable wherever you find your favorite podcast. Just search for WJFF, the Reporters Roundtable. It's been a busy month, so let's get straight to it. Liam from The River Reporter, you reported this earlier on the local edition about Hancock having a new electric vehicle charging station. What can you tell us about this and the growing electric infrastructure in Hancock? Yeah, so uh, there's this ribbon cutting on January 31st in Hancock of uh, the latest Evolve New York uh, charging station. Uh, These are charging stations that the New York Power Authority is building out across New York State. I believe they have 118 charging stations across 31 sites on New York. And the idea with these is to help solve the problem of range anxiety for electric vehicle owners. Uh, There are a lot of pushes both nationally and at the state level to get more electric vehicles on the roads and to get more consumers buying electric vehicles. But the infrastructure to support them isn't really there. At least it's not a one-to-one equivalent in terms of the infrastructure that is currently out there to support gas-powered cars. Uh, You can go pretty much anywhere and find a gas station. Uh, You can't go pretty much everywhere and find an electric vehicle charger. So the idea with Evolve New York is to station electric vehicle chargers open to the public at strategic sites across the state to provide a network for long distance trips so that if you're going on a long distance trip with an electric vehicle through New York State, you know you'll be able to charge. So the one in Hancock is uh, the latest of this initiative. Um, It's designed to service the Route 19. Route 17 corridor, um, which uh, people at the unveiling said was basically a major corridor for anyone going from the New York City area to parts west in the state. Yeah, and it's a nice location. Uh, they're building a dog park, or they built a dog park next to it. The, it was kind of a separate project the town was working on at the same time that got built along with it. So you can park your car, walk your dog, charge your car, have everyone like unjittered and ready to get back on the road. Yeah, it definitely sounds like like a plan. It's great that this network is starting to be built out because you said uh, there is the push for electric vehicles in our future and the infrastructure is not there. Like You're absolutely right. You could find a gas station just about anywhere. Uh, but the electric, uh, electric charging stations are few and far between, I would imagine right now, but it looks like it will change. Keeping on the topic of electric, there was an issue with PPL's electric billing. I hear this horror stories across the board for almost every electric company. What can you tell us about your situation? Yeah, I mean, it's, like you said, a little bit emblematic of a lot of stuff we've been seeing. Central Hudson with uh, NYSEG, RG&E. PPL Electric Utilities is a Pennsylvanian utility company. It serves around 1.4 million customers in 29 counties in the eastern part of the state, and that includes Pike and Wayne counties. Throughout January, customers were reporting really excessively high electric bills, uh, some double or triple what they had been uh, paying previously. And according to uh, Commissioner 
sorry, former Wayne County Commissioner, current state representative Joe Adams, the company estimated its bills incorrectly in December. And then when it got the sort of updated information for January, it tacked on its December charges to January, resulting in these massively over uh, inflated bills, sort of adding misery to misery. Uh, the customer service systems got overwhelmed with the number of people who were experiencing this glitch and calling in to complain about it and to try and get some resolution for it, leading to people not really being able to even figure out what was going on. PBL has apologized. It's issued corrected bills or adjusted the next month's bills uh, to sort of make up for that. It's doing a, a few things going forward as well to help resolve these issues. It'll waive late fees uh, in January and February. And it won't shut off res residential or small business customers through March 31 for non-payment. But so, so in the one sense, this is a story of like a glitch that has now been resolved. Sort of like we're seeing with utilities across the region, there are underlying issues and there are, un are underlying rate increases that are kind of going on. In our reporting on it, we found that uh, electric prices were roughly 54% higher for PPL uh, now than two years earlier in 2021. And there are multiple sources for that. The high cost of natural gas sort of adds to that. The high cost or just the extreme temperatures that lead to people using more power are another. Um, sort of tying back into the Hancock Evolve story, one of the things, one of the reasons um, like NYSEG, which is an electric utility company more on the New York side, is trying to raise its rates is to invest money in electric charging stations or solar infrastructure, just stuff to sort of adapt to and meet the climate crisis. In, in the one sense, this PPL glitch is just a glitch that's been resolved, but it, it is kind of a tough time for uh, utility companies, for all of their customers, which is pr pretty much everyone relies on power in this day. So anything that's affecting the utility companies is affecting a lot of people. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that, Liam. Liam from The River Reporter. Uh, now let's turn our eyes to Times Union. We have Lena Bellamy joining us for The Reporter's Roundtable. Lena, you covered a press conference that involved Senator Chuck Schumer as he demanded that the Army Command provides more funding for the West Point Fire Department. What can you tell us about this? Is this a volunteer fire department or are they paid? Um, that's part of why, actually, um, I pursued this story, because the West Point Fire Department is in a very unique situation. Um, it's at the United States Military Academy, so it's federally funded. Uh, so it's not like uh, a local municipal paid department or a volunteer department with a special taxing district. So it really relies on that federal funding, um, which comes from Army Command, which is under the Department of Defense. So Chuck Schumer is demanding more money to be funded to the West Point Fire Department. And I'm assuming that money has to come from the federal government. Or are they looking for other ways to receive funds? I could sort of give you a little bit of background on um, sort of like what they've been suffering as far as the funding, if you'd like me to do that. It's been basically suffering from being underfunded by the federal government for some time. But it's particularly struggled in the past two years. Um, because of these across-the-board major cuts that they've made on the federal level. There are 78 other garrisons that are in West Point Fire Department's uh, group, so to speak. It's a little complicated. 
but um they're they're in all different um parts of the country all different sizes west point is a little bit larger than most of them so these across the board um cuts hurt them more because they need more funding for uh what they need like their equipment and um, their staff so to put that in perspective last year they asked for 1.76 million dollars for their non-salary budget and even though the federal government validated the request uh, which essentially was like all of these things make sense for you to ask for um, they only gave them ninety thousand dollars um what they were calling for and what schumer was calling for was for their 2023 request to be filled which was uh, around like 1.2 million dollars you mentioned in your article the actual effects of having of not having enough funds in the fire department you wrote about the west point fire department having to borrow a fire truck from another department yeah i actually found that to be one of the most uh striking things that they told about us at the or they told us about at the press conference because their trucks they just they were damaged they needed to either be repaired or buy new the trucks cost upwards of a million dollars to replace so they didn't have a ladder truck and they were borrowing from the va so the firefighters told us that if they had to respond to an incident they couldn't do rescues from higher than the third story of a building so that's pretty frightening but there's good news two weeks after chuck schumer you know called on the army secretary to fill their budget request two weeks later which is very fast uh, for the federal government they responded and said that they would do that and more so instead of 1.2 million dollars for this year's budget they're actually upping it to 1.8 million and they're getting them two repaired fire trucks a new pumper and they are paying for a 4.6 million dollar renovation to their Washington Road fire station this year. That's great news. And where are we on the timeline right now from the West Point Fire Department getting the funds, getting the equipment they need to battle the fires and emergencies uh, in their area? Um, that's a good question. So they operate on fiscal year budgets, uh, but they've already started getting some more resources from the federal government. A member of Schumer's staff texted me yesterday a photo of a fire truck arriving so they're already getting help wow that is it is fast uh, you also have a story in the times union about a housing development in blooming grove what can you tell us about this because it seems to be a controversial project you can let us know what is exactly is controversial about it oh yes <laughs> so i'm just I'm just now learning a lot about this project. Um, it's been in the works for years. Um, it underwent a four-year environmental review before it even got approved into this point that it's at right now. But essentially, um, it's a, a group of developers that are going to create 600 single-family homes on a 700-acre site in the village of South Blooming Grove in Southern Orange County. It's controversial because of the dense development, which, you know, there's arguments on both sides. We need dense development, but, you know, how do you go about it? Where do you put it? But I think what the most controversial thing about it right now is that the developers have defied six uh, stop work orders from the DEC that have been issued since last May. 
And that includes eight notices of violations too, which they sometimes go hand in hand. Um, And this is because they didn't have, according to the DEC, the proper permits in place. And the permitting process can get a little bit complicated, but essentially there were permits related to water pollution, threatened animals, endangered species, and sewer. And so they need to get all of those in place before they can move forward with construction. But they are moving forward anyway. Wow, that's interesting. Is the local government going to do anything more as far as it maybe getting the courts involved to actually have them stop doing work, knowing that they are going to continue doing work despite the the uh, the violations? Um, so so far, I haven't heard of any um, local government, as far as like the village is concerned, trying to stop them or intervene. Uh, State Senator James Scoofus has been very vocal on this, although he told me in his interview he feels like he's one of the only uh, officials or politicians who have been kind of screaming about it, so to speak. And he has called on DEC to start issuing uh, very hefty fines to help with the enforcement to further compel the developers to stop with the pre-construction work. Um, He wants to see the total maximum, you know, absolute limit for the funds because he was saying um, he doesn't think a slap on the wrist is going to necessarily stop them. Um, And one example that he brought up was uh, the the maximum fine that's allowable for uh, water quality violations. You can get fined up to $37,500 a day for those. So he wants to see the DEC go as far as they possibly can. And then one thing that he did mention in the interview is that he was under the impression that DEC was preparing for some enforcement action. That's kind of how he put it. And I asked him what that meant. He wasn't exactly sure, and he didn't know exactly when to expect whatever this action would be. We asked DEC what that could possibly be. They didn't give specifics either, but they did send a statement that said um, they were committed to holding the developers accountable and that they would continue to monitor the site and chronicle noncompliance and will undertake all necessary enforcement actions to address the violations. So I don't know if that's a nod to them saying we're creating a log or we're watching it very closely. So we'll see what happens. You also have another story in the Times Union about a murder case about a woman who shot and killed her boyfriend after allegedly years of abuse, who is seeking a pardon from the governor what can you tell us about this and why she feels that she should be pardoned? There is a lot of attention on her case. Uh, there's been some podcasts, uh, true crime episodes. She was featured on 2020 uh, a week or so ago. So Nikki Adamondo, she's from Poughkeepsie. In 2017, she shot and killed her boyfriend and father of her children. Uh, his name was Chris Grover. So she she never acted like she didn't. I mean, police stopped her when she was stopped at a stoplight uh, in Poughkeepsie and it turned green and she wasn't moving. And then when she got out of her car, she told police about what she did. She was convicted of second degree murder and criminal possession of a weapon two years after the incident happened. Um, and she said that she acted in self-defense because she feared for her life. And she um, has said that Grover sexually and physically abused her for years before she killed him. 
So in 2020, she was sentenced to 19 years to life in prison. But the following year, an appellate court reduced her sentence under the Domestic Violence Survivors Justice Act. And they reduced that to seven and a half years. That also included time served. So right now she could be out by 2024, even if the governor doesn't grant her a pardon. Um, And so basically the reason that we wrote about it was because, well, we have this new series that we're running in the Times Union and it's called The Follow-Up. So we look back on things that we've reported on before to give people basically a status update. And so that's what we were doing in terms of Nikki's pending application for clemency. And she she first submitted her application in 2021. Um, and so last year, around December, her team, which she has a big team surrounding her of supporters. She's got friends and family. Um, she has uh, people who talk to the media. She's got pro bono lawyers, the, a lot of supporters, thousands of people who've signed petitions. Um, so they made a big case uh, to put her story back in the spotlight in December. Because Governor Governor Kathy Hochul, well, and past governors, they usually grant pardons and sentence commutations at the end of the year. Um, so they were hoping that this would put some pressure on Hochul to uh, grant her application. But uh, it didn't happen. It's still pending. She wasn't part of the group. So um, what our story did was we kind of just said that was the news. And then we looked at... Um, reforms to clemency that Hochul has proposed. And we sort of told readers where those stand, what she has done and what she still hasn't done yet. This sounds sounds like a very interesting case. And thank you so much for bringing this up to light to our attention for for our listeners. And uh, definitely, uh, we hope to, we definitely look forward to your further reporting on this if there is a, a conclusion uh, to this uh, story. Now let's turn to Derek Kurt for the Sullivan County Democrat. Thank you again so much for joining us on the program. A story that we've been following is the White Mansion on 17B. I understand this parcel of land was going to be developed a couple of years ago, but unfortunately that project fell through. Now there is a new development plan happening, uh, but some folks are not that happy about what's happening with the development, and there was a public hearing. What can you tell us the latest on this project and the White Hall, on the White Mansion on 17B, and the latest, and what came out of the public hearing? So yeah, the Bethel Town Board, or excuse me, the Bethel Planning Board, not the Town Board, the Planning Board, uh, they reconvened after uh, hosting uh, the first public hearing on the reapplication or the new application of the uh, White Lake Mansion House. And the original application of the original developer was back in 2013. So in 2013, that application ended up falling flat on its face. It did not go anywhere. It did not move. And a new application with, I believe, is a new developer has come back again. And yes, it is. it has become controversial for a number of reasons, including environmental concerns of, of White Lake and what building and, and industry might do to the physical lake, to the natural environment surrounding the lake. Um, there are concerns of the character of the hamlet, and there are concerns of traffic increases. Um, I know at the public hearing, uh, there was a section of public comment, and many residents uh, spoke up in criticism about it. Specifically, there was a volunteer firefighter from the town of White Lake, or 
the hamlet of White Lake, excuse me, who grew increasingly concerned of the increase of traffic, especially in the summer when we have an inflow of visitors, of people who come up only in the summertime. So there were there were many different varying concerns for the project. And another major concern uh, that brought a lot of people's attention was when the and the project is being proposed again uh, at the latest uh, planning board meeting uh, by Jacob Billing of Billing Laughlin, excuse me, and Silver LLP, who is the representative for this developer. There were concerns that the information that he brought towards the board and before the crowd that the data that was collected for the project uh, in 2013 is currently being used and looked at. And that data comes from 2012 on traffic, on um, water and sewer. And so there were a lot of concerns that there wasn't enough research done or put forward in this new application, um, which, you know, at a glance, it, it almost looks like a reapplication of the 2013 uh, Mansion House Development Project. It's very interesting because a lot of the projects that come before the planning boards that I've seen, uh, one of the biggest pushback on all of them ha- always has been the the environmental impact that a project will have, uh, you know, uh, land clearing or, you know, uh, uh, wastewater or uh, the chemicals that put on the fields, all those things come up to question. Where in the timeline of the planning board right now is this project? Yeah, so the planning board that night, they did not make any action uh, for or against the the, uh, the application. Uh, there were calls from the crowd to uh, deny the application right then and there and close the public hearing, which they did not do. They ended up uh, discussing it amongst themselves with Jacob Billing, and they ultimately, the, the planning board, told the crowd that it was, you know, a lot of information to digest. There was a lot of new things to look at. There was a lot of research that was still coming in. And so they they took no action on the application and they closed the public hearing without setting a date for a third public hearing on the development. So currently there um, is no solid uh, evidence that uh, it may move forward. Uh, so I think we'll be expecting to hear back from the planning board relatively soon on a decision. Definitely keep us up to date on that project because it seems to be interesting. The not only the controversy, but also the where the project is located right on 17B. Looking ahead at the election, Derek, for the district attorney, you have Deputy County Attorney Tom Clowley running against acting district attorney Brian Canty this November. The only difference now is that Deputy County Attorney has switched parties, is now running as a Republican, and will be challenging the acting district attorney. Derek, what is the latest on this election for the district attorney? Yeah, I think you said it pretty well. Um, even though election day, you know, it's a bit far away, people are still gearing up and getting ready. Uh, I've, you know, uh, heard that both the Republican committee uh, committees and the Democratic committees in the county are ramping up their efforts. Um, looking forward to November, acting DA Brian Conaty uh, stepped into the role initially just earlier this year when former DA Megan Galligan uh, ascended to the bench uh, to be a New York State uh, justice uh, for the third judicial district and he take that he took that vacated position and county deputy attorney uh, wanted to throw his hat in the ring and they had a forum earlier this year uh, which resulted in a number of 
local Democratic committee members um, and local residents asking questions and, and them sharing their thoughts. And one major point that the both the candidates really rallied behind was the idea to establish a more vertical integration system in the district attorney's office, which would allow newer, more ex unexperienced attorneys to take on more challenging uh, cases and under uh, varying levels of difficulty. And they both agreed essentially that that switch towards more of that type of system would al allow for better retention, better invitation to people looking to uh, start a uh, legal career in Sullivan County. So, um, you know, they talked about a number of other things, but toward the end of the end of the forum, they closed it. And just a few you know, short a short time later, Tom Colley announced that he would no longer be seeking the Democratic nomination. And managing editor at the Sullivan County Democrat, uh, Joe Abraham, was able to speak with uh, Mr. Colley, and he confirmed that he would be seeking the Republican endorsement for the DA race. So it looks like both Conaty and Colley escaped the primaries from each other, but it's we're still not sure. It's still very early for either committee for people to throw their hat in the ring as well. So at least for now, they're, the primary between Kali and Conaty is uh, no more. So both are running for seeking separate nominations from the separate parties. Thank you so much, Derek, for that. Now let's turn our eyes towards Ulster County and Ellenville. We have the one and only Chris Rowley from the Schwankong Journal. Chris, welcome back to the program. As of this taping, we're taping this on a Tuesday, Valentine's Day. Jen Metzger will be giving a state of the county on Wednesday. What can you tell us or give us a preview of exactly do you think some of the topics she will be discussing? Well, I haven't seen the uh, the speech or anything. That will be held uh, in secret until I believe we get it get to look at it at 3 p.m. tomorrow and she will deliver it at 6. So I expect uh, if we're going to do anything in advance, it'll be a fairly frantic hour or two after we get a copy of that. And then, you know, we'll see. I mean, I imagine it'll be the usual sort of thing you would expect from a new county executive. Um, for us, I think the biggest news is that it's being given in Allenville and not in Kingston. Um, and maybe she's going to make this uh, a practice and, you know, take it to New Pops next time or, you know... Um, yeah, other Woodstock, of course. I mean, <laughs> other parts of Ulster County, uh, you know. So uh, that that is definitely a, a, a break with the previous uh, two uh, Ulster County executives. So um, as for what's else going to be in it, I don't know until tomorrow. Um, but I'll let you know on Friday. You know, I think it's uh, it's it's going to be interesting. I think Metzger has a somewhat different take on things because she has been a state senator. She has a sort of a view that's a little uh, broader in some ways than maybe Pat Ryan or certainly Mike Hine had before. And, uh, you know, we'll see how, 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 how she sets it out. I mean, it'll be sort of like putting out her wares from the shop to, to see what she can do. She does have a, a friendly legislature. So, you know, county-wide things shouldn't be difficult for her. So that's, that's that one. Um, I look forward to hearing it because... She. This is her first state of the county, so I'm interested in what ideas she has going forward for the county. Let's talk about the Environmental Conservation Commission. Uh, what is this all about? Uh, this, uh, I think, it's, it's, I guess, is uh, current development. Uh, uh, Wolfsing has an Environmental Conservation Commission, um, 
and uh, they have been working for several years on a report uh, concerning water resources in the town of Wawarsing. And of course, most of the people in Wawarsing have wells uh, drilled to this nice phrase that um, Jack Griffo, the chair of that commission, came up with, bedrock. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, you know, most people have deep wells, all drilled down 100, 200 feet. But the issue really arose was that most development in Wawarsing and up and down the 209 corridor uh, is on top of the, the aquifer. And uh, this is a singularly uh, difficult issue because it's an important aquifer and it's the only one in, in the town, really. And it's shared with, you know, Rochester, Marble Town to the north and also down to Mamacating and Wordsboro and then on down uh, <laughs> into, uh, uh, you know, further south. Anyway, the uh, the issue is if they were to do anything as recommended by the Conservation Commission, um at least as, as it is now uh, in that report, um, in the words of uh, Town of Wawarsing uh, attorney uh, William Collier, that would be the end of development. <laughs> that would be it. There would be no more development. So, uh, you know, because they're, they're calling for, like, the use of only one-third of a parcel of property for any particular commercial development and, and things, things of that nature, which would pretty much hamstring most, um, you know, commercial development. Um, so we'll see how that develops. That's a, that's a, a relative, put it this way, it's a, it's a fairly warm potato handed to the town board. You know, how are they going to deal with this? Uh, and we'll see on Thursday when they meet, if they're prepared to discuss it, whether they're going to be happy with it or they're going to say, well, hey, it's too late. You know, because historically, all development has been right down that corridor. That's where everything is. If you drive down 209, you see uh, everything from farms to, uh, you know, McDonald's. You know, that's, that's where they are. Um, and there have been uh, historically a couple of uh, rather sad and horrible uh, pollution issues, um, particularly on the outskirts of um, Ellenville, uh, the uh, Wawarsing uh, in Napanock, uh, Napanock Paper Mill, uh, which was a Superfund site, uh, has been worked on for decades and is probably close to like, being done as I understand it. But, you know, the, the legacy was pretty terrifying. Anyway, so, you know, you've got those sort of those sort of problems. And um, we'll see. Um, I look forward to uh, Thursday's meeting um, and watching town board members dance around on that one because, you know, it's a difficult issue. You, you don't want to knock out all development. I mean, that's that's crucial for various kinds of, uh, of taxes and, um, you know, whatever. And um, jobs, you know. Um, I mean, would would it be, you know, that we would have to cancel the Cresco Labs uh, application, which is already permitted, right, which will bring maybe 375 full-time positions to World War II? You know, I mean, no, that's not happening. <laughs> so so that's where we balance our, our thing. You know, it's the, it's the future of our water resources, V of V, um, do we have jobs today? So that's that issue. Um, It'll be good. We'll see how it goes. So I guess the main concern is that it's going to be, they're afraid of uh, draining the, the aquifer or contaminate it. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's, it's terribly easy in our, in our culture to, um, you know, spray long-term pollutants around, PFAs. You know, I mean, we're terrible. 
I mean, we're just a very messy species. Let's face it, you know. And um, uh, you know, we 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 will we will do without even thinking about it. Really, we will do terrible things uh, that cause the uh, plumes of one thing or another to go cascading through an aquifer and then into people's wells eventually. You know. Um, so anyway, it, it, the, the balancing of these things is is tricky and it's uh, kind of the, the story of our time really isn't it you know um, on the one hand we have the environment on the other hand we have us <laughs> we want to eat it. <laughs> yeah you know we have the situation here in sullivan county with the airport where uh it was used at one point to help train firefighters and they were using the spray foam which has pfas in it and it contaminated the area around it and it was just found out recently that it was contaminated so there's a process I mean, they're not a process, but there's a process. There is going to be a process to remove it. But these are the effects of what was happening in the past. We didn't know what all these chemicals would do to us. And now we're sort of uh, feeling those effects. Yeah, well, it's, it's the same thing. I mean, okay, the PFAS is a, produces foams that are really good at snuffing out fires. You know, if that's what you want to do, then that's where you go. Uh, no, okay, PCBs were really, really good at protecting transformers from fires. And you only had to use a certain amount in your transformer oil to make sure those transformers would not burn, no matter what happened. They could be struck by lightning. But unfortunately, um, the 13 different kinds of PCBs ended up becoming a colossal uh, pollution problem all over the country, you know. we you know and 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 our, our knowledge and understanding of these often chemicals uh comes a little bit behind our use of them which is the problem yeah yeah this is definitely a concerning issue that we are facing now uh because of the past mistakes thank you so much for joining us on the reporters roundtable for february today i was joined with Journalist Liam Mayo of The River Reporter, Chris Raleigh from the Schoenkock Journal, and Derek Kirk from the Sullivan County Democrat, and Lena Bellamy from the Times Union. I've been your host, Patricio Robayo. Thank you so much for joining us on the Reporters Roundtable. And don't forget to look out for our podcast. Search for WJFF, the Reporters Roundtable. Until next month, stay safe. Stay safe.